All right, everybody, welcome back to another video here on Financial Friends. If you're tuning in via not video or a podcast version, thank you for tuning in. To everyone here on YouTube, go ahead and hit that like button. We have another episode of This Week in Finance for you where I take relevant news stories from CNBC, Wall Street Journal, Twitter, all over the internet. I show them here, give you my thoughts, give you my opinions, and it's really a food for thought episode to get everybody thinking and talking about what is going on in the world of business, finance, and investing. If you like business, finance, or investing, or all of them, make sure to hit subscribe on this YouTube channel. It's really all we talk about on this channel, and I know that you will enjoy some of the other content posted here and spread all over the internet via these channels. So go ahead and check those out. Hit the like button on this video. Let's go ahead and dive into things. I'm going to start with really the story of the past couple of months, but really the story of the past week, Elon Musk. Elon Musk did complete his takeover of Twitter. We discussed how he got rid of the CEO and the CFO and all of this crazy stuff is going on. But the focus I have here is advertising. Elon Musk wants to take Twitter. He wants to make sure that free speech is relevant, but he also needs to make money with the business. And He's dancing around all of these delicate issues, tweeting things out, causing this stir of emotions. And of course, when a polarizing figure like Elon Musk takes over a platform, all of the people who now think they're going to be protected by some new free speech agenda come out. And that they did. There was a ton of outrage, a ton of outpour of hate speech and other things like that on Twitter. Of course, Twitter taking it very, very seriously, taking things down, making sure those things don't get impressions. Um, But that still happened. And so what's going on now is people are pulling advertising. If you slide down a little bit further in this article, you could see actually as early as last Friday, GM told... Twitter, well, they told CNBC, but they took to Twitter and suspended all of their advertising on the service. Now, this is a little bit relevant because, of course, they're direct competitor to Tesla. And so supporting Elon Musk and thus maybe indirectly supporting Tesla or the fear of Elon Musk and as a result, kind of Tesla hiding or maybe not taking their advertising as seriously in an effort to benefit Tesla, all of that type of stuff is possible, but the main reason they stated was to understand the direction of the platform under new ownership. And honestly, I think that's relatively fair for everybody. Now, the actual title of this particular article was an advertising giant, Interpublic Group, recommended all of their clients suspend paid advertising on Twitter for at least a week. Again, for these safety trust concerns, but to see the direction of things. Now, the reason that this is big news is because these are massive advertisers. These aren't one company like GM pulling advertising. Now, of course, it's still a big deal, but in the grand scheme of things, it's not that important. But when you have an advertising agency with clients like CVS, Nintendo, and Unilever, that is a big deal. Now, I didn't look into all of Interpublic Group's clients. My guess is they have a lot of big high-worth clients like CVS, Nintendo, and Unilever, but that's some pretty big news. Now, these companies didn't, obviously, you can see below, respond and, and really give any feedback or inkling of what they were personally thinking, but this is definitely going to be something to keep an eye on because when you purchase a company 
for $44 billion, you don't want to see the one thing that generates revenue for that business disappear overnight. And it feels as if that's happened or is beginning to happen. Now, pushing on with this story, we want to see more from Elon and his tweets have been going absolutely bonkers. Shifting gears from just advertising, he is now making polls and, and discussing the direction of the, the company and all of this crazy stuff. One of the things that he really wants to do and he's very pushing for is an $8 a month subscription for essentially premium Twitter, meaning that you will now pay $8 a month to have this little blue check mark, or in this case on my screen, it's white, to have this check mark next to your name. Now, in the past, this check mark means you're either a high individual, you're in the media, but for some reason, your account needs to be verified. And that basically means you are who you say you are. And there's a massive issue on Twitter with people not identifying as a human and actually being what they call a bot. And these bots create spam. They send spammy messages, fake promises, cryptocurrency scams all over the platform. And they increase the amount of accounts that appear to be active on Twitter, but are really just computers spewing spam. And nobody wants that. That was one of the reasons why Elon Musk said he wanted to take over Twitter so it could be a more productive, better environment for people to have a town hall where they can simply discuss anything and everything or a town square was the, the term he used to discuss anything and everything they want with no political agendas going on whatsoever and equal protection of freedom of speech for both sides of the party or both sides of the aisle. Now, his proposal has gotten demolished and there's been some absolutely hilarious images of Elon Musk. This is him uh, on Halloween, I believe, but then he posts this all for $8 with him in his costume. And then after that, we have him making fun of the people who are saying that $8 a month is too expensive, referencing how you could consume an $8 beverage from Starbucks in 30 minutes, and people will refuse to pay $8 a month for verification on Twitter. That's why I own Starbucks stock, just saying. Um, and then he also here again says, $8 a month for Twitter verification, so much for free speech. And then someone replying back to him, basically saying, well, you could use it for free, you just won't get the benefit of verification. And um, the guy kind of goes mm, and shrugs. So of course, just verification is, is one aspect of this, but there are other aspects of this new premium Twitter model that he is kind of discussing as well. I think some of those things have to do with what is currently Twitter blue. And I can pull up what Twitter blue is here. It allows you to edit your tweets. It promises a better, more relevant news offering. Um, and a better thread reading experience, getting top articles, and I'm not even quite sure what some of these things do. Clearly, I don't have it, and it is currently $5 a month. Now, that $8 a month subscription will include the verification, and my assumption is some of these things as well. Now, this could generate massive amounts of revenue for Twitter. I probably should have grabbed this image by Chart R Daily, but they made a post on Instagram and they basically laid out, I wonder if I could search it on my Twitter, actually. I don't even know if they have a Twitter. Chart R Daily, and this is pulling up things for Charlie D'Amelio. No. Let's go to Instagram and see if we can find this. 
Look at us going through and finding some information that is going to be relevant. Here it is. So the Twitter potential change in business model. Let me move myself here. Um, here you can see the current Twitter revenue, $5 billion all advertising. Now, this hypothetical additional revenue could be added on by verified current verified users paying $8 a month. This was add $40 million in revenue. If 5% of all of the users paid $8 a month, it would generate an extra $1.14 billion. And if 10% of all Twitter users paid for this, it would generate an extra $2.28 billion. Now you can also see the percentage of current free users converting to paid users versus the amount that was charged and how that if 20% of people signed up for this at $20 a month, which in my opinion would never happen, it would generate $11.4 billion a year for Twitter. That's a lot of money, and I believe that this is kind of Elon Musk's grander plan to create an experience on Twitter that is actually so productive and beneficial that people want to move to the platform. Advertisers want to be on the platform because it is a productive and great space to be. And with that, he would be able to spin the company around from being semi-unprofitable to being very profitable. At least that's what I'm assuming he has in mind. Of course, I can't read his mind. Now, going along with all of that and making the company profitable is firing people. Twitter insiders are expecting a 50% overall reduction in workforce. That is this quote here from CNBC. Now, we all knew this was coming. There was rumors that 75% of the workforce was going to be fired. We're getting about 50% of that workforce being fired, which is in the ballpark, I would say. Now, this isn't concerning to me um, in a macroeconomic scale. I'm going to speak on a couple of things here in a second that would be or are beginning to be a little bit concerning on a macroeconomic scale. But for Twitter, this means getting rid of a lot of expenses. If Twitter can do the exact same thing it was doing before with less, they can become more profitable. That's the goal. Now, speaking of those things that are concerning, it's these two articles here. Amazon announced they are pausing hiring for their corporate workforce and Stripe is laying off 14% of workers. Now, the overarching theme here is either not hiring or actually firing. Firing is what is really not good. It means that people who have jobs now don't have jobs. And pausing just means that we're not going to be bringing on more staff so people who don't have jobs can't get jobs. But what this creates is a lot of people who don't have jobs. Now, a lot of people isn't just the 14% of Stripe staff and the 3,700 from Twitter. But if we begin to see this in mass, if we begin to see all companies doing this, and we have already begun to see a lot of cuts being made around the market, a lot of bigger tech companies are pausing. A lot of relatively big or maybe medium-sized technology-focused companies are pausing or actually firing and cutting work staff. And I would be extremely concerned if this read Amazon or, uh, pauses pardon me, hiring for warehouse workforce. That would be not great. <laughs> that would be what I would actually call scary potentially. Now, if they're just trimming some pandemic fat, for lack of a better term, and getting rid of some of the people they hired that they maybe actually didn't need moving forward, then that's one thing. But if we begin to actually fire people 
from these warehouses. And of course, they're getting rid of some of the warehouse space because they added that on too quickly. But if they're letting go of people who fuel the fire, who do what Amazon does, which is fill orders, that is concerning because it means that they're having to cut even inexpensive workers. And I don't mean that in a rude way to anybody, but I'm sure that these corporate people making six figures are a lot more impactful to the bottom line of the business than someone who is making 14 or 15 or whatever the minimum wage is now for Amazon dollars an hour. That would be extremely concerning if cutting people from the warehouse side in mass becomes routine for the company moving forward. 14% from Stripe, which is I'm assuming a relatively smaller company as a whole, this isn't very consuming or uh, uh, concerning, especially given the fact. Let's see. Stripe said it would reduce headcount by 7,000 employees, um, that which means it would impact about roughly 1,100 people. So, of course, still not great. We don't like to see these type of things, but this is the direction of the economy. This is why everybody seems to think that a recession is going to happen. Um, and what I was just about to say was that Stripe is a technology company for the most part, so they can accomplish the same with less. If they were over hiring again to fuel a fire of growth that that was the trajectory the economy was on, then they're going to have to, again, for lack of a better term, trim some of the pandemic fat and cut back to a more normal level of employment. Now, another story here, um, kind of a twist from everything we were talking about, which was Debbie Downing, um, is an acquisition made by none other than Johnson & Johnson. They are buying the heart pump manufacturer, manufacturer, tongue twister, Abiomed for $16.6 billion. Now, this is going to bolster the medical devices portion of Johnson & Johnson. For those of you who are unaware, Johnson & Johnson is split up into roughly three categories, medical devices, consumer health, and pharmaceuticals. Now, pharmaceuticals and medical devices are sticking around. And there was a video I posted a while back. I'll try to remember to leave the link up here somewhere for you to check it out. Uh, the consumer health portion of Johnson & Johnson is getting spun off of the core business and will become Kenview, its own company. Now, this is relevant. This story is relevant to that story because as they're trying to get rid of one portion of their business, they're trying to ensure that they bolster another, that being the medical devices category. Now, the CEO of Johnson & Johnson did say that one of his priorities for the new Johnson & Johnson, which is, again, getting rid of the old part, is to drive med tech to become a best-in-class performer, that being right here in the article for reference. Now, Johnson & Johnson executives did say that beyond the new products that Abiomed is developing, they believe that they can use Johnson & Johnson's existing structure to expand Abiomed's reach outside of the U.S. This is a critical aspect of this acquisition. Why? Because if Abiomed is only selling in the U.S., there's a whole world out there for them to tap into, especially if they have a great product. What Johnson & Johnson does good is tap into that broad world view of business, and instead of limiting this company to what is held here within the United States, they can get outside of that. And they can turn this, I believe it was a roughly $1 billion um, in revenue a year company, $1.5 or $1.03 billion with the expectation of $1.5 billion by 2025. Maybe this can become a $3, 4 5 $6 billion a revenue a year business. Now, the medical device sales portion of the company for Johnson & Johnson did $20 billion in sales in just the first nine months of the year. So if that gives you any 
um, reference there for size of company, A Biomed, of course, being a very small portion of the overarching Johnson & Johnson umbrella, but one they hope can continue to grow or spur growth for the business. The last note here that I did take from this article was a biomed will operate as a standalone business within the conglomerate of the medical technology division. The company does not expect to make any job cuts or significant job cuts was the word that they actually used at Obiomed once the deal does close, noting that there's actually expected synergies from the deal that would be quite modest. So a good look overall for Johnson & Johnson. Um, they did pay a premium, actually 50% premium. Not actually sure if this is a good thing or a bad thing. Obviously a good thing for a Biomed shareholders. There's also an additional right to receive $35 per share in cash if there was specific commercial and clinical milestones achieved. I'm not quite sure what those are as well, but it looks like Johnson & Johnson knew this was the right business for them paying a 50.7% premium. And the last story, the one of course that we all know, we actually all feel in our day-to-day -day life, that being the 0.75% rate increase by the Federal Reserve. Now, this was a wild one. Um, you could see the stock chart here, and I don't really say wild as in it's actually wild. It was exactly what investors expected, but you could see the beginning of the day here. This is a day chart for November 3rd, which was the day they did announce the 0.75% rate increase. We open the day down down about, we'll use the S&P for this, uh, down about, let's see, 1.6% or so, 1.5%, okay? We continue to climb into the announcement of this 0.75% rate increase, this being right about here. And we peak right about the time that Jerome Powell starts to speak. As the words flow out of his mouth, the stock market starts to dip, gets a little bit excited as people maybe by the dip, whatever they're kind of doing, right? I mean, it's obviously a very minuscule mark from barely positive to barely negative, um, but then they kind of trade down, come back up and take a steep fall into close. So it's just really interesting to me that like, as we get news, which is exactly what we expect, the market likes to peak. It doesn't continue to peak because of what Jerome Powell said, which was, he expects to continue rate increases and the Fed will stay extremely diligent in returning to 2% inflation. They did mention, and I think this was the little glimmer of hope that was said within the speech. And for those of you who are unaware, the glimmer of hope, anytime we're referring to hope from the Fed, it's really a pivot, them going back down in interest rates because it makes money easier to borrow for businesses and can fuel growth. Of course, we don't need that at this moment. We need higher rates to then curb inflation. That's kind of the whole goal of what's going on here. But people like to hang in the balance and see, oh my, is the Federal Reserve going to say they're going to stop raising rates? Is there going to be any end to the pain that is these rising interest rates? And they basically said, no, um, we're going to continue to raise them until we need to stop. But they are going to take into effect lagging the lagging effects, I should say, they're going to take into account the lagging effects of those previous rate increases, which means they're going to keep an eye on how the economy adapts to the fact that they've raised interest rates. I believe the number is somewhere in the threes percent since the beginning of the year. So they're going to watch. They're, they're going to 
They're going to note the fact that rates have went up sky high at an historic rate that we really haven't seen other than I think in 2008. And I think we've crossed that threshold now at this point, but they're going to keep an eye on it. And he made sure to basically say, no, stocks go up. No, no, we're going to keep raising rates. We're going to make sure that we actually get this job done. Yes, we're going to look at those lagging effects, but no, we're getting this job done. So it's exactly what we expected from the Federal Reserve. Nothing more, nothing less. So that has been it for this episode of This Week in Finance. If you did find this episode interesting, go ahead and leave a like down below. I do appreciate all of your support. If you've made it this far, let me know why you like these episodes. What about these episodes do you find value in? For those of you who are the dedicated listeners who have made it here, I am considering changing the format or the way in which this show takes place. I've considered a Twitter newsletter. I've considered um, a TikTok series. I've considered all different types of avenues to get this information out there. It does air on all platforms on Sunday in some way, shape, or form. But I kind of been able to tell that the YouTube version of this show hasn't been performing quite as well as some of the other videos. And maybe because it's such a stark difference in content, it just doesn't get picked up by the algorithm. So let me know why you like the show, what adds value um, about the show to your life, to your investing um, knowledge or, or career, whatever the case is. Let me know down below in the comments. Thank you very much for watching and I will see you on the next one. Take care.